Hi, this is Matt. Just a quick note before this podcast that the audio quality is not what you're used to as my recording equipment was in the shop and we had to jerry-rig a little bit to get this one going. But the story is incredible, so stick around. Hey, remember supply runs along the Argandab River? Never. You guys didn't no, do I'm well? Just <laughs> <laughs> I only actually went on one actual supply convoy and that was up to Frontenac. And then uh, just driving T-Lab between Polchican, Wilson, and Massengar. I never, ever wanted to drive a T-Lab in theater ever. It is the scariest thing. It's got a very flat bottom. It definitely has a flat bottom. And I think it's made out of armor that like burns perpetually if it gets on fire. That was the rumor for sure. Yeah. And with the big cage on it, the ramp always broke so it couldn't handle the weight of lifting the cage up. Oh my god. Yeah, we, ours was always broken and we had to go through the little door. I think we're giving away military secrets at this point. <laughs> I don't think they're using them anymore. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure. I was at the uh, War Museum and I'm pretty sure that uh, the RGs are in there now. What? Yeah. Really? Yeah, there was an RG from Afghanistan sitting in the War Museum. That's insane. Yeah. Well, I'm telling you, those T-Labs were disgusting. They were like a relic. I remember seeing like T-Lab pictures of T-Labs like in books about the military in the like the 19 like 70s like these things were like how old are those you know this is how every conversation between soldiers takes a dark turn and we get really <laughs> depressed about our equipment anyway uh. <laughs> Hi, I'm Maciej. And I'm Matt, and this is episode five of Veteran X. Today on the podcast, we have my friend Jessica Weeb. Jessica was on my tour with the RCHA and later with 2PPCLI Transport Platoon. She's now a visual artist with the Canadian War Artist Program and will be headed to Eastern Europe later this year. Jessica joins us in the studio. So, Jessica, how long have you been out? I think my... Um my situation is a little bit messy in that I'm a reservist. So um, I ended up going overseas on a Class C contract. And when I got home, I worked a Class B contract for a year and then asked to go on ED&T, traveled for a year, got home, didn't want to be in the military anymore, and then um, had to go through all the medical stuff to get out. So I ended up moving out to Halifax for school, and my medical appointments counted as me parading. Well, so that's all right. Yeah, it was all right. Yeah, so once a week I would go in for my medical appointments. <laughs> kind of a weird situation. I don't know. Did you have to go and pray with the reserve regiment at all once after you like came back home? Uh, no, because I jumped right into a Class B contract two weeks after getting home from Afghanistan. Man. Yeah. What was that job like? I worked at Watsi, so you probably can guess what that job was like. It's the Western Area Training Center. I don't know what they call it now that it's all <laughs> divisions, but. Yeah. I didn't really enjoy myself there very much. I think I was pretty bitter and a little angry with the military at that point and uh, kind of butted heads with the sergeant. So it was a very miserable experience at that time. And I think that's what kind of led to me asking for some ED&T to take off for a while. How did it feel knowing that you would be leaving the military? It was such a slow process because I was still technically in the military while 
separating medically and going to school. So I had that experience of going to school while also releasing from the military, which is really helpful. Um, but it was scary in a lot of ways that uh, I moved out of province. I didn't know anybody in Halifax, uh, especially no one in the military. And so I had no one to really talk about the military with or that experience. So it was really hard, especially going to the military base in Halifax at Statacona. Um, and not knowing anybody. What was that like? It like, was probably the worst year I've ever had. Yeah? Yeah. Um, was it just like being disconnected? And uh, When I got home from tour, um, I jumped into that Class B contract at Watsi. Wasn't super happy, was pretty bitter, didn't really want to deal with the bullshit of the military. Um, and I started to focus on exercise a lot. And I did also overseas a little bit as well. Um, and I started to eat healthier and started getting really into nutrition. And um, things just kept escalating over the next year with, with um, like over-exercising and getting obsessive about exercise, um, losing a lot of weight, um, feeling starting to feel very fit, still working at Watsi, and um, then uh, I still wasn't really feeling super emotional about anything, like I think I turned a lot of my emotions off. So I didn't really know how to deal with a lot of the stuff that happened, and so um, I think I put all my energy into controlling what I ate and what I did for exercise, and um, I think it was probably around April, March, somewhere around there that I started actually binging and purging, because I wasn't actually getting enough nutrients or food, and so I was starving, so I would eat a whole bunch of food, and I would panic and go, well, what do I do? So I started to make myself sick, and I that became, you know, once a week thing to twice a week to multiple times a week, plus all the exercise on top of it. Um, and so that summer at Watsi, I was going to the gym every day and, uh, I knew something was off, but I just felt like I was really in control and like super fit and like, you know, on top of shit. Um, and people kind of started commenting about my weight saying, you know, you keep losing weight. You're looking a little, a little small, you know? And I thought, no, I'm like, I took it as a compliment, really. I wasn't thinking about, you know, what I actually look like. Um, and finally, like, my friend came up to me and said, you know, I, I think you should just go see a counselor on base and just talk a little bit to someone, just about, you know, whatever. So I went in, and I guess we're supposed to have psych tests when we come home from Afghanistan. Did you yeah. guys have a psych test, like, right when you got home? Yeah, or? and I put a lot of red flags on mine, and I never got anything back from it. Really? really? Yeah. What kind of red flags? Oh, just different problems I was having because it's a checklist, right? Are you experiencing this? And I was like, yep, yep, yeah, okay, well, we're going to have a discussion about this. And then nothing. Huh. Wow. Yeah, they had that like little questionnaire, right? Yeah. It was like a booklet, literally. And a lot of guys were like, oh, I did this last time. Just say you only drink like two beers a week or whatever. Right. But I didn't either. I was like, no, these are all the things that I'm experiencing. And it actually took going in. I, I guess they were just collecting data or something because it took going in and like saying, I need help. I was like, I'm the healthiest I've ever been in my entire life. I felt great. I thought I looked great too. And I'm pretty sure I didn't. Um, now looking back at that. Yeah. But I went to the counselor. I said, you know, I've been, I told her I had been making myself sick. I don't think that's okay. Um, and she was like, went through my file and she's like, oh, you didn't do a psych test. I was like, no, I didn't come in for any medical after tour. And so I think there might be a bit of a break between, a bit of a gap between reserves and reg force, or maybe because I jumped right into that contract right away. I'm not sure how that got missed. But at that point, a lot of control popped up, a lot of anger, and a lot of body issues. And so she had me meet with the psychiatrist, and she wrote a claim in for Veterans Affairs. I'm like, I don't know why you're putting a claim in, because like 
I'm fine. It's not connected to this. It's just I'm having, I'm just, I don't know. I didn't really understand at the time. That claim got put in and like shut down immediately. Um, because they put it in for bulimia, uh, but they had nothing to attach it to. And so I was kind of a little frustrated. I didn't really understand what was going on. I was like, I'm just going to deal with this in my own way and work on it myself. That's when I wanted to be, I finished my class B contract that like end of August in 2009. Um, and I took off for New Zealand <laughs> and I spent eight months living in New Zealand, went through Bali for a couple months and Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, India, Nepal. And then, um, I called my unit. I was like, you know, I think I need just a few more weeks. And when I was traveling, I was very much like on my own. And I really lost complete control of everything. And um, I went to like yoga ashrams and I, did all, I tried to do all the good stuff to make myself better or to, you know, not find myself, but just to be healthy and be okay and deal with some stuff. And I never did, <laughs> obviously. Um, but I started to... Um, cut out a lot more food like I didn't have any carbs or I, would, I wouldn't drink alcohol or have a beer because of the like the calories and um when I was in um uh, it's hard to say this out loud because I haven't really shared this with a lot of people but I think it's really important because I'm sure there's other people who are dealing with this as well but um I started taking laxatives while I was in Bali to help get rid of whatever was left in my system after purging. And that started because I went to a, an ashram and I did a full body yoga cleanse, and so which also isn't really healthy, um, depending on how you do it, obviously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, people have been doing it for a long time. But um, yeah, so I started to lose a lot of weight. And um, I called my mom before coming home. I said, you know, I think my body's like not quite right. Can you book an appointment with my doctor when I get home? And, um, because my stomach was really bad and, uh, I spent two more weeks in like the UK and Ireland before coming home. And I think I was running, like I really did not want to come home. I didn't want people to see how fat I got from traveling and everything I ate. And, um, I flew home. It was a week before Christmas and I got home and I was weighing 112 pounds. And so, and I, sorry. It's okay. <laughs> um, I'm 5'6". I shouldn't be weighing like 112 pounds, but um, we went to my doctor's the next day, and he's like, you know, you've got you, they've got we've got a problem, like huge red flag. You know, I was, wasn't weighing anything. I wasn't barely, I was barely eating anything, and whatever I did eat, it was coming up. And um, so he said, you know, I'm gonna put it into the hospital, see what we can do. And I was like, well, I don't need that. Like, I just need to be home and just, you know sorted out like I was still so in so much denial I don't know I just didn't want to I didn't think it was connected to the military because it was an eating problem it wasn't what other like what the guys would be typically experiencing like gambling or drinking or drugs or whatever um uh, it wasn't any of those things I didn't do any of that um but it almost has the same effect you know what I mean huge. like yeah. and the same like feelings of like it's not like superiority but it's like in like complete control like oh so much control yeah like you're, yeah. you're controlling like every little aspect of your life and yeah you know like with me like we were talking in the first episode like i felt like like drinking made me you know like the person that i was before or mm -hmm. what i was supposed to be you mm -hmm. know and felt like i was the most productive i'd ever been when i was doing drugs and you're just like tearing your body apart yeah you know? no yeah. So, um, like two weeks after, um, I was at home and for like two and a half weeks straight, I would binge every night and I would go downstairs and tell my mom I was having a bath. I'd run the bath water while making myself sick so no one would know. 
got really good at being like quiet and secretive and she knew she knew it was up, like something's up you know and um one night I went to walk downstairs and she said I know what you're doing and I just lost all sense of reality and just started screaming and saying you have no idea and I ran downstairs I like locked that door and my mom came downstairs with the coat hanger unlocked the door and said you know if you want to make yourself sick you can stand here I'll stand here and you can make yourself sick in front of me and it just broke me like she called my dad, and he was there within, like, 15 minutes, and he took the screwdriver and took the hinges off the bathroom door in my bedroom and sat on my bed while I stood there staring at my closet because I couldn't even look at them in the face. And that's when my dad said, you know, so I'd applied to NASCAT at this point, and he said, you know, I can come visit you in Halifax, or I'll, I'll, I'll have to come, like, I'll come visit your grave. That's basically where it was at. I was now 110 pounds, and so he made me sit there with that, extreme uncomfort in my stomach because I stuffed myself so full. The next day we went to the hospital and I was checked into the psych ward. And that's when I had to contact my unit and be like, okay, <laughs> something's not right. <laughs> so your, your parents were the first people that you told? Yeah. They, Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. It's embarrassing because... Um, There's so much shame attached to yeah. these things, right? <laughs> yeah, a lot. Yeah. And it's like... I don't know, I, it wasn't typical, it wasn't, so I still had no connection to, you know, that military experience or anything like that, and I wasn't looking to make that attachment at all, or that association, sorry, um, but that's when I had to go to my unit and tell them that, you know, they found I was in the hospital and I had to deal with that, and um, then they got me in contact with Shiloh again, and that's when I started getting the paperwork sorted to start getting some help, um, but then I took off, and I was like, I don't want to be here I don't want to deal with this and I applied to NASCA I took off for Halifax that fall so I didn't even have a chance to even really get things started so coming to Halifax now we're finally there sorry <laughs> um <laughs> yeah that first year was was brutal I lived in the house with like seven other people um and I was like binging and purging multiple times a day while going to school full-time um, at NASCA, the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design, and it's a very intense foundation program, so I'm kind of shocked that I even made it through that year. Um, Just the sheer amount of art that you were producing during that time. I remember you were posting massive. it on Instagram and posting it on your on your feed. Mm -hmm. You did some really beautiful pieces. Thank and you. ones that, like, really, like, personally, like, touched me. Like the one that I managed to pry <laughs> out of your hands that hangs on the wall in the studio that we're in today. I looked at that Jess, when I first saw it on your Facebook and like, I, I feel like I felt it because it looks like several different experiences like layered onto each other. When I look back, like that's the way it feels like in my head. Right. It's very blurred and yeah, it's a pretty incredible piece. We'll put a, like a, a photo if you don't mind up on the, on the website, mm -hmm. but it's just like, I looked at that and I was like. Jess is feeling the same way that I'm feeling. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's almost more true than a photo. And I think that that's what really good art is, is right? something that isn't just a, a pixel for pixel replication. It's something that you feel. And uh, the color is what gets me because that color is something so unique that stands out mm -hmm. that I think of that of Afghanistan can you know it's almost a a spectrum that no one else can see or feel like a very dull beige with that dust yeah against like pulsating green fields mm. of 
poppies and marijuana and grapes. It's un- <laughs> it's unbelievable because like like the depiction is like a sandstorm, but at the same time it like it looks like several different like combat outposts or pieces mm-hmm. on top of each other, mm-hmm. and it's like. I don't know where you were drawing, like where you were drawing when you did it. It's all from memory. So I was thinking of all the places I was um, and thinking about the t- different towers I spent a lot of hours in, yeah. vehicles, the landscape, staring out at your arcs. Didn't you guys find that like when you're looking out at your arcs, it would be like nobody there and then all of a sudden some person just popped up and like where the fuck did they just come from? <laughs> yeah. It's like some weird game of like Afghan whack-a-mole. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Very weird. I, I often wondered sometimes <laughs> if it was because I was like daydreaming because like your, your mind goes right like yeah. off oh, to yeah. other places. You're ob- you're obviously being diligent and mm-hmm. your, your eyes are and your brain is mm-hmm. registering what you're seeing. Yeah, but you're human. Yeah. yeah. You're a human being. And it's like huge sky and that color <laughs> and green. So it's like. It's so surreal too. Right? Mm-hmm. And every unreal. photograph I took, like it was kind of pinky, like a little pinky tone mm-hmm. to it, that pinky beige. Yeah. No matter what setting I had my camera on, it's crazy. And the sky was just unbelievable. Like at I, nighttime. Yeah, I don't know how many pictures you guys would take, like as the sun was going down when you were sitting in the tower. But I know I've seen like probably <laughs> ten thousand of them on Facebook. Every vet friend that I have has them. Up. Definitely with you. Unbelievable. Yeah. Like what a good experience to have. Like to take with. Like not a good experience, but what like like that is a very beautiful moment. Like it's it's hard because war so, can be so violent. Yeah. There's so much beauty in violence, and I think art can approach that in an interesting way. But because you look back and there's a lot of shit that happened. Yeah. But there was also a lot of great moments too, like when you're sitting there joking and listening to stories or whatever, like having a pop tart. Yeah. Spunkmire muffin for breakfast. Dirty Spunkmires. Yeah. What years in Rotos were you on? I was over on Task Force 108, so Roto 5, from March, I think it was, till September, mid September. Yeah. And uh, what were you doing? I trained as an artillery gunner. I was actually telling Matt, the drive over here, that my military start was so quick. I joined June 29, 2006, right out of high school. I did my basic training that summer. I did my artillery trades course that, that fall, winter. And I started workup training April. Wow. So I wasn't even in the military year before I started my workup training. And I was kind of put in the pool of like people that don't have positions yet. Right. So I was like attached to one of the troops at RCHA. Now, and did you join, you know, wanting to go to Afghanistan? No. no. Oh, wow. Actually, I remember my first day of basic training. Um, they said, who here plans on going, like, signing up for Task Force 108? Because they were wanting to put, like, 40% reservists or something on that tour. Yeah. Um, and, like, everyone's hands went up except for mine and one other person. And I was like, I was, then there was, ended up being, like, two of us that were actually in my platoon for basic training that ended up going over, and I was one of them. Wow. So it was a gut feeling. It was really weird. Um I joined the military thinking, you know, this would be great for discipline, but also for, I'll go to university. I also did a year of university through that, my weekend warrior trades course. That's how they get, Um, yeah. 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 And then, but it was that fall, we had guys from my unit come home and from, from 106, which was an insane tour. Yeah. Um, 
And hearing their stories, I had this weird feeling in my stomach that it was something that I need to go and do and experience. I couldn't understand Afghanistan. Like, that was grade 12. There was death in the paper every week. And I just remember, I just couldn't understand what was happening and what was going on. Because you grew up in Brandon, right? So yes. you're like right beside CFB Shiloh. Yeah. And no no military like in my family either, besides my grandfather like in World War II. So oh. yeah, so I had this I had this like weird gut feeling. And I remember going home one weekend and saying to my mom, you know, sitting on the couch, I'm like, you know, mom, I, I think I need to go over. And she's like, well, if you feel like you need to, then I will be behind you, like 100%. But the day that I left, you know, that was like, I think that's like the hardest day when you think back. Like, that's where I get the most emotional about is that saying goodbye, like the day in the big gym at 2VP. Oh, yeah. And like, you've got, I had my mom, my dad, my brother, and um, just my dad looked at me right in the eyes and I'm so proud of you. It was just like, oh. <laughs> and then I remember getting in the bus, and I remember having the feeling I wanted to run off and go give my dad and my parents like one more big hug. But then the bus started to go, and I looked back and I saw my dad standing there, and I was like, fuck, here we go. <laughs> Pretty real, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I started workup training. I was I didn't have a position. I I was attached to. There's three troops out of RCHA. Each, or for two of the troops, they had one gun was all reserves, one gun was all rag force, and my troop was all rag force for both guns. And so slowly, like we, like positions opened up and people were put in positions. Um, at one point, I was put on a gun and taken off for no reason whatsoever. I actually remember asking my sergeant, like, I don't understand, I got a position, why did I get taken off that position? And he straight out told me that the warrant didn't want a female in the troop. And I was like, that's not a, that I'm doing my work. I'm doing my job. Like that's not an excuse. There's nothing I can do about it. So I dealt with that. I pushed harder. I got back on the gun. Um, and then a whole bunch of shit went down and Wayne, right. And this was a, just terrible. Um, and I didn't have the trust that you need. Oh, I mean, the warrant didn't want you in it. He didn't want reservists. I don't think he didn't well, want a reserve. No. He didn't want a female because every single reservist I got on the troop was taken off or had a, had some reason to get kicked off the gun. Did you have any, did you have any friends when you were going over? <laughs> I mean, I assume you made some when you got there well, at some actually, point. Well, actually, it flipped around. Okay. So the situation flipped a little bit. Uh, things got really bad, and my friend was like, you know, if there's no trust there, you can't go overseas with them. Right. But I'd worked so hard to get that position. I really wanted to go. I needed to go. And um, I finally, I just, I went to the Padre. I jumped the chain of command. I went to the potter. I was like, I need to tell someone or talk to someone. Um, so I kind of broke down and just like laid it out flat for what was like to him, to what was going on. He went straight to the BSM and the BSM took me out of the troop immediately and took me over to VP. And I was part of the transport platoon. Um, thinking about it now, I wonder like if they were scared, I would like speak out or something and make a big deal and cause a ruckus. But who says ruckus? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, man. Some people cause a ruckus, you know? Especially at 2VP. <laughs> no, There's a 2VP, lot of ruckus going on. 2VP was the best military experience of my life. Wow. I got over there. There was uh, two girls in the transport platoon. We were being set up to be right seaters for convoys for resupply. Um, I did a couple more courses really quickly before tour. This is two months before leaving. Um, and we deployed over in March. And uh, once we got over there, we started doing some convoys, but then our, like, platoon kind of got broken up a bit as like positions opened up in other places and people kind of got put wherever um and I was also telling Matt like on the way drive in about like or like I drove T-Lab over there so my first my, my first vehicle in the military was the G-Wagon and then my second was the T-Lab and it was a two-week course and I drove it for like maybe 20 minutes 
and that was it. And so I got overseas. I did one resupply um, convoy up to Frontenac, got back. Like two, two days later, the warrant came up, and he's like, yeah, you're T-Lab qualified. You're going to be part of a security platoon that we're sending out to, or security force that we're sending out to provide security for a construction management organization. And I was like, okay. But I also questioned that project a lot. I probably shouldn't question it, like, on a podcast out loud to people. But I really mm. want to. <laughs> no, you can. <laughs> I think a lot of people question the, the the road building project, especially the people that had to watch them. It was beside what's uh, Mazumgar. Mm, I spent some time there. A hundred meters in what? Eight months. I was there the day they finally paved. It was the hottest day I've ever spent in Afghanistan, and it was also oh. a gong show. Watching the Afghan men try to offload this heavy equipment. <laughs> They're not exactly With the no most ramps. hearty, hearty gentlemen. I felt like I think, the, I think the funniest thing that happened on the road was I was at Massengar for a while, a little while too, and I did security there as well. And I remember, like, because I had to get aggressive, you know what I mean, to get you know to, I don't know, come off like a strong soldier. Yep. <laughs> I may not look like one, but um, but there was one day where there's this man that was squatting on the side of the road and he's supposed to be working. I was like, hey. I was like, get back to work. And I'm like giving him a hard time. And the translator walked over and he's like, he's taking a shit. Oh. And I was like, because they squat and they're in their like man jammies. I felt like an asshole. I'm yelling at this man. It's bad enough that I'm a woman. <laughs> you know, and... <laughs> So, I, (laughs) yeah, there was another situation that was pretty funny, too. Um, There's a lot of women we kind of let in and out there on on that road. And uh, I said, you know, we should be searching these women because, like, it's very easy for a man to come in wearing a burqa or something. And so they had a little seat container. And this older woman came up with these two little kids. And I went in the seat container to search her. And I said, is it Lasuna Portacra? Like, put your hands up? Something yeah. like that? I don't know how I remember that. Uh, there's, what, like, Leman Portacra, put your hands up, and Lasuna Portacra, lift up your shirt. Oh, that's what I said to her. I, she probably didn't want to lift up her shirt. Probably I thought not. I told her to put, put it over her hands. But <laughs> anyways, I reached down. I reached around her waist first, as you do. And something I never thought about was bras, you know, like, and where your boobs sit. I reached around her waist, and I grabbed her boobs. And because they were like <laughs> by her waist, and she just started screaming, and this kid looked terrified, and I was like, "Zaza, just go!" <laughs> and I went out. I was mortified. I felt so bad. And the guys were like, "What the fuck just happened in there?" I was like, "I don't want to talk about it." And the translator was looking at me like he was he was disgusted like he he knew what she was saying obviously and so i get you back and no harm by it either not so. at all <laughs> i was just it was like the first person i had to search over there too so i was like okay so i get back in the lab and one of the guys is like oh weeb's got more <laughs> how do they say it weeb's got more action on this tour than any of us <laughs> I was like, oh. it was terrible it was really embarrassing and i felt really bad for her i hope i didn't yeah that was those poor kids I mean, you talked about what your relationship or how it affected your relationship with your parents. What about friends or other people? I definitely lost some friends and pushed a lot of my really close friends away for quite a while until I was ready to actually make the work 
or start doing the work to get better. And that first year at NASCA was awful. Um, there was nights before bed that I would lay there thinking, you know, am I going to wake up in the morning? Because, like, my heart was going and I felt so lightheaded and empty. Um, but I wanted to be empty. Like, I like that empty feeling and I still really cling to that. It's a problem and I'm still really working on it. But um, I officially was released October 2014 and I went through the VOC Rehabilitation Program. And so I ended up, I graduated NASCAD 2015, and then I started my Acadia degree for my, my education degree, like, three weeks after. So I don't like to deal with things. <laughs> Instead, I just keep making myself busier and busier and busier, um, and not, not, not facing stuff. That so, is like a, a wholesome coping mechanism. Yeah. <laughs> there are way worse things. Let me go get a degree. Yeah, no. Yeah. But yeah, it was tough. And like, I was, I'm very grateful that the community, community at NASCAD accepted the work that I was doing. Um, and my professors really pushed me to keep making that work. And I had one, one professor say like, you know, you're not going to make this work forever. You know, you will move on to something else. And it's amazing because when I was at NASCAD, all my work was very personal. It was really based on my own experiences in Afghanistan and with the military. Um, the last year and a half, two years, I finally started making work that is more community-based, and it's been the most rewarding work I've ever done, um, looking into some performance work that I've done, and um, trying to bridge that gap between military experience and civilian understanding of those experiences, which is very difficult, because if you haven't experienced it, you don't understand, but podcasts like this can kind of help bridge that gap a little bit, um, so that's my main focus in my work now. Um, Did you have trouble sleeping when you first came back? Like, what was your relationship like with sleep? With sleep? Yeah. Um, I wake up multiple times throughout the night, probably because I drink too much water, but I have night sweats really bad. Still? It's, yeah, it's it's terrible. I hate it. Like, I wake up and I'm just drenched. And I have, I've always had bad dreams, very vivid dreams, but mm. um, yeah, they can be pretty horrific. And so I don't even know why. But, um, like, I've, I'm, I'm usually being chased, or sometimes I'm actually back in Afghanistan. Mm. Not that often, but there are usually situations in that, in, that I was in, but, like, in a different situation, if that makes sense. I've had the exact same one. Yeah. And situations that I don't want to be in, yeah. but I feel like I have to be there and or do you don't do have your rifle. Yes. Like, I have yeah. nothing yes. to protect exactly. myself with. Exactly. But you're there's this sense of duty like well fuck i got i'm not gonna run away exactly. in mine anyway yeah. and but the stress is there and it's like oh fuck oh fuck oh fuck. we're all having the same dream i feel really bad saying this but i've actually like if someone's attacking me a dream i have killed people in my dreams oh absolutely yeah, yeah. um and that bothers me the most because I, I I don't even like to watch horror movies or anything like that because I just can't stand because I get those pictures in my head and I know that's going to go right into my dreams and I hate it so I have to be very aware of like what I'm watching on TV too mm. um, especially sometimes I like to have days where I kind of binge watch horror movies and I'm like why am I doing this to myself but I really enjoy them and then I have a few days where those dreams come and so I think another reason why I put off like actually working with my psychologist and doing the e EDMR, ED, what is it called? EMDR? EMDR. Uh, What's EMDR? It's like, I think it's somebody with like lights in your eyes and remembering these situations, but instead she uses like headphones with beeps and it goes back and forth at different huh. like times. And so we find a situation where I feel something specific and then she has me um, tell her about that experience and then I think about it 
while these beeps are going back and forth. And then I'm thinking about the sounds, the taste, um, uh, the say smells, yep. <laughs> and my surroundings, what's around me, um, and trying to get the details of everything and, and trying to relive whatever that experience is. And it could be something from my childhood that that's very simple and build up to something. But when I have that, I think it like opens some stuff up. So I know that I'm going to have a few days of like probably terrible dreams. And so... I, I've been avoiding it for a long time. And actually, it was after listening to your first episode, Matt, that I thought, you know what? I think it's time. <laughs> I think I need to actually deal with this because I've, I'm pretty much, I want to say I'm recovered from the eating disorder aspects. But having, like, I can move so far forward with the eating and I can do really well and make leaps. But I still have that stuff, that shit that I haven't dealt with because I haven't wanted to that pulls me back. Because I don't want to deal with it, so therefore I grab onto the coping mechanisms that include food, exercise. So I still have to exercise every day, day and if I don't, I get extreme anxiety. Um, I got really lucky when after like my second year at NASCAR, like through the voc, or sorry, when I was finishing NASCAR with the voc rehabilitation program, I got doctors that are incredible, mm. um, and they did connect it to post-traumatic stress disorder. But a lot, I went through so many doctors because most military cases of PTSD don't are not associated with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, women haven't been in combat that long on the on the on the, like, the larger scale of things. No, and there's so not a whole lot. There's of not data. a lot of research, and so I started doing research myself, and I can't find a lot. I know it's happening more and more, but it go it comes back to that um, symptoms are the same, progresses the same, but it manifests differently. Mm-hmm. And so when the doctors were able to finally start to connect those things, I got a diagnosis. I started to get the help I needed, and um, that voc rehabilitation program like pretty much brought me to where I am now and I'm still working with like my psychologist and my psychiatrist for different things like my psychiatrist I work with the eating my psychologist I'm supposed to work with the PTSD but then I just I'm actually really proud of myself three weeks ago I started seeing a dietitian for the first time so I'm actually going through the feelings that are associated with what like when I start to binge or you know I haven't purged in since since 2013 which is huge. That's incredible. Thank you. I'm really proud of myself for that one. Uh, but it took a long time because I still had those like urges all the time after. Like when I would get upset, I would just start eating. But then I knew I couldn't actually deal with it the way I had before. So I had mm. to sit, learn to sit with the feeling of uncomfortable, being uncomfortable, feeling full, all those, all the shit that comes with it. That's and really it's hard. like that's really it's what hard. like reliving the experience and getting to the root of it's like, right? Yeah. It's like sitting and being with the uncomfortable. And it sucks. It sucks, mm-hmm. but it really is like, just like it was getting through the eating disorder, mm-hmm. like that, that at least I believe anyway, that's really what gets you through like the PTSD stuff. Mm-hmm. It's reliving those experiences in, mm-hmm. and it sounds like your doctor's doing it, like trying to get you to remember tastes and smells yeah. and cause you want to bring yourself back to that. We've only done it like two times. <laughs> I really don't want to do it. <laughs> Matt, Matt's the exact same way. I, I remember Matt being. Like, I talked. To I don't him. want to do that. I talked to you when I was. Yeah. Like in the middle of it, right? Yeah. It took. It took to the third week of doing it, Jess. Wow. And then I started to notice, like, it was a memory, and not something that I was a part of or. A t- yeah. In? Yeah. I mean, like, it happened to me. I know it happened to me, but I don't relive it every single time. Mm-hmm. I can still like smell the things if I if I remember it, but I just like my heart rate doesn't go. I can mm-hmm. sleep at night. 
oh man, just keep it up. Like you're, <laughs> like you've come so far. Thanks. So far. I had to get really bad first, but it always does. Yeah, it was just, it, I kind of look back and I'm shocked that I made it through that first year at NASCAD. Like I'm shocked with the amount of binging and purging and laxative use. I just, I don't even know how I'm still here sometimes. Because you're half a lot stronger than you give yourself credit for. Yeah. Jess, you seem like a pretty positive person on the outside anyway, mm -hmm. the way mm -hmm. I'm interpreting you. Yeah. Was, is, did that positivity take a dive uh, in that, you know, first year back or were you still projecting that, you know, day to day? How, did, has it shifted at all or has it pretty much been constant on the outside anyway? Uh, definitely a huge dip. Yeah. A lot of people noticed I wasn't myself and I wasn't myself for a long time. Um, I didn't go out, you know, I didn't want to go out to certain events and I would say no to a lot of things, um, because I looked fat or felt fat or, you know, I didn't want to put myself in a situation where I had to eat food or something like that. It's normal people do, you know, there's a classic like avoidance of anything that, yeah. And I think, I think like it took a huge dip at NASCAR, but it started to come up my first two years in Halifax. I didn't come home once. Um, I think I still was like running, you know, trying to find, What's the saying? Find my feet. Yeah. Ground myself a little bit. Didn't happen. So when I went home, seeing family, that really helped, like, put things in check. I got back, and that's when I met, met um, my boyfriend. And um, we started seeing each other. And it was at December where I realized, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. It was this weird, like, moment that I was like, I'm done purging. I'm just done. But I still had all the other stuff that I was still dealing with. And I kind of kept it to myself and slowly, like opened up and shared bits and pieces, but it's scary. So there's a lot that I like kept to myself without sharing until later on. But he was such an incredible, or is such an incredible support. Like we went for sushi one time early on and I would eat just like the salmon on top of the rice and I wouldn't eat the rice. And he looked at me and he's like, why don't you eat the rice? I was like, I, I don't know. And he's like, he's like, it's kind of weird. <laughs> Just so honest, eh? And I just started to cry. I was like, oh, because like, I knew I would have to face it, and I didn't know how to face it. So that's when I had to tell him, you know, there's stuff I'm working on. And so slowly, he'd be like, hey, I would love it if you would just have one piece of sushi with the rice. I was like, okay, I can do one, you know? And so just slowly, bit by bit, and he's like a big foodie. Like, he loves food. And, I'm, and for, like, six years, I was a vegetarian, like, almost vegan. I cut so much out and wouldn't eat anything. I would say, oh, yeah animal cruelty, but really I, I was lying. I, it was because I didn't want to gain weight or eat something that would mess up my system of flushing everything out. Um, and so I remember we went to like a restaurant one time and he ordered this like beautiful burger and I got the veggie burger and he's like, do you want to try a bite? And I was like, no. <laughs> and I was like drooling basically. And he's like, just have a bite. And I like, I love meat. And so I was like, okay. So I took a bite and then I had to go back to the veggie burger I was like I don't know if I can do this anymore and so slowly over the last five years I'm just now eating everything I'm even having like a beer every once in a while or two or three you know I can do that going to play softball with my friends you know That's I awesome. don't avoid people anymore and like I tell my friends like get me out of the house if I say no if I start to like close in give me a shout we'll go for a walk or go to a class or whatever. So it's taken a lot, but um, I think 
I'm very lucky that I've had such amazing people in my life to help me get through it. Like, cause I, I think if I didn't have that, it would, I would be a very different, in a very different place right now. Yeah. So Jess, um, you've been through a whole lot and you've come so far. What does a bad day look like now? Now? Um, a day when I don't want to leave the house. You know, like I have my studio in the house. I work from home and I love it. Um, I usually make myself get out of the house for like a class, like kickboxing or jujitsu or something like that, which actually has taught me a lot. Um, but I can tell you that after. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, just not wanting to leave the house, eating a lot. And like messy eating. So I'm still like, when I say messy eating, it's when like I don't eat things that are like my particular, like my fruit in the morning and like, you know, veggies and then a small snack and then having a big dinner. Like I've got all these rules around shit. And like, so this dietitian's really helping me like work on it. And so, um, so when I have a day where I like eat like a whole bunch of chips and chocolate and like I'll eat like a box of cookies. That's a bad day. That's when I'm, like, feeling shit. Mm. And then I make myself feel even more like shit because I just ate the whole box of cookies and a whole bunch of other crap. But I have to get out of my head that, you know, cookies aren't bad. It's just food. And so I'm trying really hard to accept that. But that then those are days when I start to beat up on myself and then I get emotional and then anxiety comes because I've eaten too much. And that same, all those emotions that I had before just rise up and come back through me. And I start to have that urge where I'm like, oh, I really want to get rid of this but I have to sit with it. And so that's horrible. It's like the most uncomfortable feeling ever. Um, and that's usually when I have to go do something. But if I don't go do something, it's just like a write-off. So that probably doesn't sound bad to most people eating no. cookies and I'm gonna t- I'll be honest with you. If, if, if you haven't eaten a box of cookies to yourself, you're a liar. Because <laughs> I've definitely done that. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I just went to Japan two months ago, yeah. and everything is, like, all individually wrapped. Like, I bought cookies, and you open the box of the cookies, and every single cookie is wrapped. And, like, it's like, yeah, that's terrible for the environment, but you don't have the pressure to eat the whole box. That is true. Because, like, you eat, you're like, oh, they're going to go bad. Right. And you eat them, and then you're like, shit, I ate a whole box of cookies. <laughs> or, <laughs> so, that's that's what I deal with. And... Most people don't worry about it, but for some reason, I really beat myself up. So, <laughs> what about a good day? What does a good day look like? Good day is waking up, having my normal breakfast, yogurt, nuts, seeds, and just spending the day painting and listening to podcasts and audiobooks, which is most days now. And then leaving the house to go to Pilates or kickboxing or whatever, and then coming home and having dinner with George and watching Netflix. <laughs> Very simple. I like simple. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sweet. Days when you just don't worry about anything. What uh, what motivates you to succeed? Like, where are you headed? Where Where do you want to go? Or do you want to stay where you are? It sounds actually really nice. I'm pretty good right now. Yeah. Uh, what motivates me is um, my work a lot. Um, and the military means a lot to me. I've got a love-hate relationship with it. Um, but I feel it's really important to share those stories, not my own, not just my own personal stories, but everyone's stories, just like what you guys are doing and um, working with veterans. Um, I did a military art program at one point where I had veterans come in and I taught art once a week at the MFRC and in Halifax, but I had to stop doing it because I had to take care of myself. But um, I would love to aim for that again. But um, I just applied to the Canadian Forces Artist Program out of the War Museum, and I got selected. So I'll be heading to the Ukraine in Congratulations. November, That's huge. Thank wow. You. It's like my biggest goal. It's amazing. It's like everything I've done with my art 
school, everything, and everything I've done in the military is finally merging into one thing. And I'm mm. so excited to go over there and be able to use my own experiences to be able to document like the subtle nuances of military experience. You know what I mean? That most artists going over to a war zone or to you know, whether it's training in Canada or anything with the military, they wouldn't know about, you know? Just how um, many how many actual veterans have there been that have participated as an artist in the in the war in the like the war artist program? Uh, well the programs changed names over the years. It started in World War One yeah. through Lord Beaverbrook. Um so obviously in World War One, World War Two those soldiers were trained and they were over there. Um since I don't actually have a number, there's a few. There's a few. Yeah. I think it's pretty incredible. Thank you. I mean, you're part of an, a really esteemed list of major names that uh, I can't think of right now, but I know that there are some big, Alex big... Colville, yes, Colville. Ted Zuber. Except for Ted Zuber, he uh, actually fought in the Korean War um, and realized like 20 years later that no one had really documented that conflict war artistically right um so he started painting from memory and his paintings are absolutely incredibly detailed and there's they're hanging at the war museum there's also some at the army museum in halifax i'm sure there are places but he's one that you know didn't necessarily go through the program but did it after realizing the importance of that um i could just keep going with names but i mean my uh, yes but my (laughs) point is that you're in an amazing group of people and you're on an amazing list now and that's such an amazing accomplishment um are you a member of the legion no why not um i've talked about this a lot this last year it's come up quite a bit um i i don't necessarily feel comfortable going into the legion um i even find on remembrance day sometimes like I'll wear my civilian clothing now with my medals. And people still come up to me and ask me, like, oh, those are, those are your dad's medals? Mm. And things like that. Or like, I don't know, I just feel like it just doesn't, and even going to the Legion, I don't feel like people there would want to talk to me or I don't know how to engage mm. with them. But I think it comes down to like when it was first set up, um, you know, it was just veterans and people that they would bring and you're able to share your stories and experiences with no judgment whatsoever um and i think that since there's so many civilians that are part of the legion now that soldiers can't go in there and feel like they can actually share their stories with their buddies without getting judged and i think uh, it's tough you know because like there's language that military people use that's not acceptable there's you know the stories may not be appropriate um but they really help in working through those issues. So I think like after World War II, like people had, they could talk about it. They could have a few beers and talk about it. Um, and now I don't think we have that. We're spread out. You know, there's not as many people and I don't know. Does that make sense? Totally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, forget the fact that you're a woman. We as just younger people, mm-hmm. People don't see veterans as young people mm-hmm. because of the media, because of what they know, because of society. I remember Matt and I, Matt got into a fist fight with some guy, middle-aged guy, who Matt was like, yeah, I'm a vet. And he's like, no, no, you're not. I mean, the guy was kind of drunk, but... So was I. Yeah, so were you, to be fair. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so, I mean, and we're, you know, not wimpy looking guys, just a bit younger. And as a woman, I can't even imagine yeah. 
not that I'm saying you're wimpy. I'm just saying that as a woman, I can't even imagine the sort of discomfort or the the way people would, you know, treat you or potentially treat you. And I, I can definitely see how that would be an issue. Thank you to Jessica Weeb for coming in and being our guest this week. Uh, that's it for this week on VeteranX. Be sure to check us out online on veteranx.ca or on Facebook at VeteranX. Veteran